here in just a few minutes we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 as we continue our series through the book of Nehemiah. If you'd like to go ahead and find your way there this morning. There is a compelling realism when it comes to Scripture. The Bible refuses to present us with some sort of romantic portrait of life. Things don't always develop as we had hoped. In other words, a good beginning is really no guarantee of a happy ending. There are people with immense gifts that do not always achieve their potential. And the scripture uh, regularly presents us with frustrated ambitions and disappointing failures and neglected opportunities and, and broken vows. Sin, all through scripture, sin spoils a story. Abraham attempted to deceive. Jacob was a cheater. Moses lost his temper. David committed adultery. Peter lied. The Bible is incredibly honest. Therefore, because of that, it makes for compelling and relevant reading to us today. Following the rebuilding of the walls in Nehemiah's um, account here, um, it would appear like things would be rich and promising. Nehemiah has clearly described the people's attentiveness to scripture in chapter 8. He's described their gratitude for God's mercy, and then in chapter 9, he describes their genuine repentance expressed in prayer, and then he describes their commitment to the covenant, and in chapter 11, we have this earnestness to make Jerusalem a holy city. We have a joyous dedication of newly repaired walls in chapter 12 and also in chapter 12 we see that they delight in and have support for their spiritual leaders and now here at the very beginning of chapter 13 we see that they want to maintain pure worship and it would seem safe to imagine that with with all this as as a background all this love and all this loyalty that all would be well However, Nehemiah's closing chapter brings the book to a starkly realistic conclusion. It will reveal to us how easily the most spiritual community can find its standard eroded as it gradually accommodates to the pressures of a contemporary world. At the dedication, the the builders celebrated their, their, their moral victory in the battle against secularism and against materialism, but they hadn't won the war. And this final chapter of Nehemiah demonstrates for us the disastrous consequences of poor leadership and the damage that is caused by disobedience to God's word and the cunning temptations of a materialistic society and the danger of ignoring family values. There may have been a temptation for Nehemiah to bring this book to a more joyous and inspiring conclusion for everybody to read at the end of chapter 12 and say, well, we're all done, that's it. Or even speaking about their diligent service or their generous giving or their obedient listening, even though all of these are true, all of these things 
happen, it would have given a misleading impression of Judah's real spiritual life in the mid-5th century B.C. It's crucial for for us to understand that the people's first offense was one from which all the others derived. And that is this. They ignored God's commands. Each of the sins exposed in this chapter as we look at it stems from one common source. Disobedience to the word of God. In the events that are described here, Nehemiah tackles the same issues which which figures prominently in the public covenant renewal described in chapter 10, verses 28 through 39. Those themes to which they they, uh, gave their attention and the vows they made in God's presence emerge again in Nehemiah's final Reformation story here in chapter 13. Those themes are obedience to God's word, purity, and marriage in the sanctity of God's day, necessary generosity for the upkeep of God's servants, the planned practical support of priests and Levites, and the care of the temple. Chapter 10, verses 28 through 30, and 13, verses 1 through 31 are meant to be seen alongside one another. They're, they're really meant to, to exist next to each other, and there are clear literary links between the two, which encourage us to to read each one in light of the other one. Remember that that determined conviction that concluded the new covenant ceremony, they said this, we will not neglect the house of our God. We won't neglect the house of our God. That's followed by Nehemiah's later condemnation in chapter 13, verse 11, which we'll get to eventually, not today, where Nehemiah says, why is the house of God neglected? The covenant of chapter 10 began with this affirmation of loyalty to God's word. Nehemiah's final chapter begins with a description of Israel's carelessness about what God had said in the book of Moses concerning the purity of their worship. At that time during Nehemiah's governorship and possibly following the dedication, Scripture was read publicly. Those that were present realized how careless they had been about the wholehearted commitment of the worshiping congregation and its exclusive loyalty to God alone. They listened to Moses' words recalling the period when the Israelites were on the threshold of the promised land. A, a law, or the law made it clear that no Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. God's word exposed the sin of these nations. The Ammonites' sin was one that was of heartless omission. They refused to give the Israelites food and water, and the Moabite's sin was one of transgression and outrageous commission as they hired Balaam to call down a curse on the Israelites. And as we read this scripture, this chapter, and specifically these first three verses, it invites us to consider the sin of the Ammonites and the Moabites. And, And we also should consider the determination of the Lord to bless the Israelites and their and their obedience. And so if you're willing and able this morning, I would ask that you please stand for the reading of God's word as we read Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Nehemiah 13, verses 1 through 3. 
on that day. They read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And as we look at these three verses this morning, May your word penetrate our hearts and our lives this morning. May we be a changed people, Lord. Not because the eloquence of a preacher, but because your word penetrates our hearts and our lives and makes us a changed people. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. few things I want us to see in this passage of Scripture, starting first with the Ammonites' failure to help. The Ammonites' failure to help. Have you ever noticed in, in our life our estimation of sin seems limited to the things we do? When we, when we talk about sin, often we talk about what we do, not what we fail to do. We talk about our offenses to God and how they cause harm to others and they spoil ourselves. However, Scripture does not encourage such a a small, partial view of human failure. The fact is, we can grieve God by what we fail to do just as much as by what we actually do. The Ammonites were given this incredible opportunity to show some kindness to the Israelite travelers But instead, they resolutely refused to do so. The Israelites were exhausted and in desperate need of food and water. And so they asked that they might might buy some in Ammon's marketplaces. But they were refused to be able to purchase the essential commodities of life. The Israelites made the promise not to make their encampments in Ammonite fields. They were simply passing through the country and would stick to the main highways. Their treatment by this nation and by the Amorites who occupied the adjacent territory was cruel in the extreme. The travelers had undertaken not to touch the local vineyards and not to drink out of the wells. And so, in other words, the Israelites refused to go into these nations and take whatever it is that they wanted to take. Instead, they were willing to go into the nation and buy their necessities. However, these uncooperative nations refused to sell food and water and the way that other nations had willingly done. Please understand that the sins of omission are seriously regarded in Scripture. In the Gospels, both narratives and parables expose the danger of the sin of omission. In Luke chapter 7, we have the indignant Pharisee that did not welcome Jesus with the customary Eastern courtesies. In Luke chapter 17... 
we have the cleansing of ten lepers, and nine of them did absolutely nothing to express their gratitude to the Lord. In the parables of Jesus, failure to act is a reoccurring theme. In Luke chapter 16, the rich man was unconcerned about the poor man at his gate and was preoccupied with his prosperous lifestyle and had not listened to God's word. In Luke chapter 10, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan where the priest and the Levite failed to help the dying victim on the road to Jericho. Again, in Luke chapter 12, the rich farmer did not think about eternity and failed to store up riches in heaven. In Matthew chapter 25, the foolish virgins failed to put oil in their lamps and a timid servant did not use his talent profitably. And then in Matthew chapter 25, we see those who are standing before the throne and they're reminded of the times that they neglected the people who were deprived of life's greatest blessings and natural amenities, food and water. Just like these Israelite travelers. Shelter and health and freedom. Church, we are surrounded by the plight of the hungry, the thirsty, the homeless, the sick, the persecuted. And it should serve to us as a stark reminder of that parable in Matthew 25. We see tragedy flash across our TV screens on a constant basis. It fills the columns of newspapers with regularity. And unfortunately, has caused many of us to become compassion-weary. We're no longer shocked by what we see. We can see a starving child in Africa, and it means nothing to us. We care more about a puppy that doesn't have a home than we do a starving child. We're no longer shocked. It no longer means anything to us. We see everything with an amount of skepticism instead of compassion. We see hungry and the homeless. And we'll say things like, well, they're in that position because of the choices they made. I guess they should have made better choices. Christians of all people must not emulate the callousness of non-involvement that we see in the Ammonites, in the Amorites, when they refuse to help the needy. We need to look for and discover imaginative ways in which we can offer our cup of water in the name of Jesus Christ and do something practical to help the world's hungry and the deprived millions. Church, please understand that the sin of omission is just as dangerous as the sin of commission. When you refuse to do anything in the name of the Lord, it is sin. May the Lord convict us. May we be moved to action and not commit the sin of the Ammonites. Secondly, I want us to see this. The Moabites plan to hinder. The Moabites plan to hinder. The sin of the Moabites was one of ruthless commission. The sin of the Ammonites Omission, the sin of the Moabites' commission. They are intent on thwarting the Israelites' purpose in entering Canaan. They decided to hire the prophet Balaam to call a curse 
down on the Israelites. This this goes along with what we've been studying in our Sunday school class. So so um, if you're in our Sunday school class, then you're going to know exactly what we're talking about here. But it's a the they 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 get Balaam to call a curse down on the Israelites. This this reference to a hired prophet would not have escaped those who are reading or hearing what Nehemiah is recording here, because at a strategic time during their building operations, when they're building the walls, those who oppose a project, remember, they hired a guy by the name of Shemaiah to intimidate Nehemiah and to prophesy against Nehemiah. The exact same Hebrew word translated hired is used in both of those instances. And it is a reminder to the reader that there will always be those who deliberately, deliberately set themselves up against the Lord's work and against the Lord's servants. They will deliberately put themselves in the way and say, this isn't going to happen on my watch. It also makes us aware that at times the worst opposition will come from unpredictable sources and by unexpected means. So often, so often we're so worried about those that are outside the church when we really should be worried about those that are inside the church that are coming against what the Lord wants to do because so often it's unpredictable sources and unexpected means that come and stand against the Lord's work. I know I've experienced that in my own life. Jesus proved that, did he not? And Paul often wrote about it. Even though Balaam made these repeated attempts to call down the curse on God's people, every single effort was frustrated. Both the pagan king and a compliant prophet had forgotten all about God. And I want to pause here for a moment and just give a word of caution. Because I think there are, there are times that we think that perhaps we are doing the right thing. At least it, it feels right. And maybe it even seems right in our own mind. And it's often selfishly motivated. And, and, and we do these things. We do so, we're, we're actually trying to hinder the work of God, but we think we're doing the right thing. This often happens in, in the church life. Folks will say, say things like this. Well, we've never tried that before. We've never done it that way. We've always done it this way. And rather than consulting Scripture or, or asking ourselves, is the Lord leading or possibly directing in this direction we will come up with reasons not to follow the Lord's leading in the life of the church. We'll use things like our church constitution or our bylaws, right? Well, our church constitution says this, or our church bylaws say this. Can I be real honest? It doesn't matter what the church constitution or bylaws say. It matters what the Word of God says. Scripture is what we guide our church and our life by. And in that, I mean this, that, that often we use those documents, and they may not be able to be proven by Scripture, but we set them up and over and against Scripture instead of asking ourselves, what does the Word of God teach us? And let us be obedient to the Word of God, not obedient to my constitution and bylaws. 
And so instead of moving forward with God's plan and what we see God doing and how we see God working, we come up with a way instead to hinder what God is doing and to hinder the plan of God. And that, my friends, is a very, very dangerous place to be in. Very dangerous. Because that's exactly what the Moabites were doing. Oh, well, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to hire this prophet. We're going to hinder the plan of God. That's exactly what Shemaiah did, right? They're building the wall. Well, we don't like this. We're going to hire somebody to prophesy against Nehemiah. Thinking, well, we'll take care of this business. There's such danger in hindering the plan of God or trying to hinder. I guess I should, shouldn't say hindering because we really can't hinder God's plan, right? We can try to. I wouldn't want to be that person trying to hinder God's plan. Thirdly, third thing I want us to notice this morning is this, the Lord's determination to bless. The Lord's determination to bless. This phrase in verse 2 is a remarkable phrase. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Isn't that awesome? I mean, just stop and think about that. Our God turned that curse into a blessing. The absolute worst design of Israel's enemies were doomed to failure. Why? Because God was on their side. Balaam may have been chosen... Because he had a high success rating, but that didn't matter. Those who, who had Balaam speaking against them were fearful. They were afraid. People all around believed that Balaam's curses always worked. That's what they believed. Man, if Balaam cursed you, you were cursed. That's just the way it was. Numbers 22.6 says uh, about Balaam, I know that those you curse are cursed. So it seemed like a sure thing. They forgot about God. Because God is on the Israelite side. To say, I know those you curse are cursed, is to make a reckoning without God. And God entered the picture and he, he addressed the pagan prophet ordering him not to curse the Israelite travelers. And, and though the Moabite king was willing to increase the payment, every effort to secure Israel's downfall was brought to nothing on four separate occasions, the hired prophet could only say good things. The destructive words that he had perhaps planned to say and prepared to say died on his lips. Balaam had received his fee. Shemaiah received his fee. But in both cases, the money was wasted money. Listen, God can take ugly situations and use them for his ultimate glory for our blessing and the enrichment of other people. That's what God does. God takes what is meant to be a curse and turns it into a blessing. When China's Western missionaries were expelled from the country where God had sent them, it must have been earth shattering. They had spent decades in devoted ministry, and all of their work seemed like it was in jeopardy. Communism was ousting Christianity. And by 1951, all foreign missionaries had been forced to leave 
China. And within a few years, their pastors, their leaders, their evangelists were sent to prisons and labor camps. Houses were searched for Bibles, and when Bibles were found, they were immediately burnt. Church buildings were closed down, and during the Cultural Revolution of, ni- from, of 1966 to 1976, not only the leaders, but also members of churches were ruthlessly persecuted. Yet in spite of all this, by the most conservative estimate, there are about 50 million, 50 million Christians in China today. For over 40 years, the Christian church in that country was denied any direct practical input from their fellow believers in other parts of the world. Their colleagues in other countries could do little but fall on their face and pray. But those prayers were abundantly answered by God who turned what was viewed as a curse into a blessing. David Wang has said that the phenomenal growth of the church in China is nothing short of a sovereign move of God. Listen, if God is for us, who can be against us? The people of Nehemiah's day had this reminder of God's sovereignty from Balaam's story. They had been enabled to build Jerusalem's broken walls, not because of their strength, not because of their power, not because that there was anything special about these people, like they were, oh, they were just such a great, great people, but only because God was on their side. Despite the intense and increasing opposition, all of their enemies' attempts to destroy them had come to nothing. They had verbal assaults, belittling ridicule, insidious threats, ingratiating invitations, and deliberate attacks. Every last one of them failed, simply because the gracious hand of God was upon Israel's people and their leader. The Lord, the Lord alone, has the ability to take life's cruel experiences and turn them into something beautiful and enriching. His sovereign and compassionate purposes for his people can never, ever be overthrown. That is why when writing about the first century deprivation and persecution and famine and sword, the apostle Paul can affirm, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Tell me, church. That's our God. That's our God. If he is for us, who can be against us? He is the God that takes the, what is meant to be a curse, the, the things that are meant to be disastrous, and turns them into blessing. That is God. The God who gave his son for us will not deny us anything with regards that is vital to our daily life and work. That is our God. The Lord's determination to bless will never be thwarted. Fourthly, and lastly, I know some of y'all are probably looking at your watch like, whoa, this is like the fastest sermon that Pastor Josh has ever preached. And you'd probably be right. But anyway, here we go. Number four. 
The Israelites' resolution to obey. The Israelites' resolution to obey. So they hear God's word. That the Amorites or the Ammonites and the Moabites are not to be admitted into the assembly of God. And they respond by excluding from their worship not only those two nations, but it says all who were of foreign descent. So crucial, church. They didn't just hear God's word and go, well, okay. We really messed up. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Right? That's not what they did. They heard God's word and immediately became obedient. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that, that, of course, that these people had no real opportunity to believe in Israel's God. There are plenty of other passages in the Old Testament that make it clear that Gentiles could turn to God, but their conversion must be resolute, genuine, and definite. Those Moabites who were insistent on holding on to their Moabite belief were prohibited from attending Israelite worship. But the book of Ruth, it tells the story of a Moabitess who is not only admitted into the assembly of God, but who was one of King David's ancestors. Ruth made a public confession. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And Naomi had recognized the sincerity and genuineness of her daughter-in-law's faith, and she rejoiced that the young widow loved the God of Israel under whose wings she had come to take refuge as if to draw our attention to the radical transformation that only the Lord can perform in the human life. The phrase Ruth the Moabitess is is repeated all through the book of Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess. It's like in your face. This is the work that God can do in a life of people. Now syncretism, which is basically to, to mash together different religions and pretending like there is no difference, like they're the same thing and they get to the same end. Syncretism was a severe threat to the spiritual life of God's people. Whether they were captives in Egypt or residents in Canaan or exiles in Babylon and Persia, they were always surrounded by these pagan influences over and over again. If Israel is going to pass down their unique faith from one generation to another, then the vibrant message must not be compromised and must not be adulterated. By assimilating uh, assimilating cunning elements of surrounding religions, the purity of Israel's faith had been crucially important during the exile. Babylon's idolatry and Persia's uh, idol-free religion were an equal threat to God's people. They find themselves in this alien and materialistic culture. It couldn't have been easy to maintain an uncompromising witness to the truth of the word of God. Unashamed commitment was vital priority. The book of Daniel uh, preserves stories that illustrate both the impending dangers and the impeccable heroism of God's servants who are steadfast and loyal to their unique faith. It was no less easy in the early church either. Paul gave warnings to his readers in Rome about the danger of worldliness when he tells them this, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Isn't this a continuing danger in our world today? 
constantly surrounded to be conformed to the thought pattern of this world think like this world do like this world act like this world and if you're not of this world then you're a bigot you're you're all these other things right if you don't conform your thought pattern to the way of this world, then it's you that has a problem. To be a Christian today, you must swim against the fast-flowing current of a contemporary culture. We are called to live in the world, but we're not called to let the world live in us, church. The citizens of Jerusalem were alerted to the importance of purity in worship as the book of Moses was read along in the hearing of the people. They were obedient. The daily reading of Scripture and its faithful exposition and relevant preaching is essential to Christian growth and maturity. What I'm saying is that if you want to grow as a Christian, then you need to be in God's Word daily, and you need to hear God's Word faithfully preached and expounded upon to help you grow as a believer. When we take the time to study the Bible ourselves or, or um, we listen to Christian teaching, God corrects us and he encourages us and he instructs us through his word. He corrects us as he identifies sins of omission in our life. So we may be sitting there going, oh, this is me. This is, I have sin of omission or I have sin of commission in my life which needs to be put right. We suddenly begin to see things the way that we should be doing or the things that we should not be doing. We say, well, I'm not doing this, but I should be or I am doing this, but I should not be. Is that true in your life this morning? Are you walking close enough to the Lord that he's revealing to you both sins of omission and sins of commission? Can you honestly think in your life this past week and go, yeah, the Lord revealed sin of omission and commission in my life? Are you a compassionate person? Do you quickly see the needs of others? And are you willing to meet those needs? Or would you say you've become compassion weary? You see, church, as Christians, we don't have the option of callous non-involvement when it comes to meeting the needs of others. Or perhaps you think you're doing the right thing, but instead you're hindering the work of God committing a sin of commission. Maybe you're the first one to speak out against any change in the church. Could it be that you're actually hindering God's work and what God's trying to do instead of helping it? He encourages us by reminding us that he can take life's curses and turn them into blessings. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're in that situation today. You're looking at something in your life and you don't see how God is going to take that and use it for a blessing. You say, God, I have no clue. How are you going to take this and use it for your glory? 
I get that. I know what that's like. Can I encourage you this morning just to trust God? And even though you may be going through pain in these moments, trust that He's in control, that God will work out all things for your good and for His glory. And finally, as with the Israelites, He instructs us, urging us to rectify those things which damage our lives, hinder others, and disappoint Him. Do you have any of that this morning? Are there things in your life this morning that you need to get rid of? Things that are perhaps keeping you from serving wholeheartedly in the community of faith or maybe even things that are a hindrance to others and they're disappointing to God and you need to rid your life of those things? I would plead with you this morning to get those things right in your life. If it means that you come to this altar and that you confess the sin of something that you've allowed to dethrone God in your life, then do it. If it means you have to go to someone this morning or you got to pick up the phone and make a phone call because you've hindered someone in their walk with Christ and you have to apologize and you have to ask for forgiveness, then do it. If it means that you have to confess some sort of sin of omission or sin of commission to God and say, God, I've hindered your plans in this church or I've hindered your plans in my life. I've tried to stop you at every turn. Then do it. If you say, God, I am doing things that I should not be doing and I'm involved in things I should not be involved in, then confess that sin to God. Remember, I think it was last week, when I talked about how often our churches refuse to deal, deal, refuse to deal with past sins, and it stunts future growth. How many churches today, because of their refusal to deal with their past sin, to say, "Well, not my fault. I didn't. I didn't. We weren't in the wrong." And God's like. Don't expect a blessing from me. You won't even deal with your sin. How many churches are in that predicament? Deal with the issues this morning, church. I implore you, do not just sit in your pew and think, I'm okay. Deal with what God has spoken to your heart this morning. Let's close a prayer.